the year. So if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading at verse 13 and then move into chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we're going to read about the resurrection, the comfort of Christ's coming that Paul gives them truth that we need to be established in as well. This is a great time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones. And uh, like I said, we got a lot to cover. As Father, we look at this letter that was penned 2,000 years ago, inspired by you. As Paul, the human instrument, put these words to the page, and they're for us today more than ever, that there is a blessed hope. And I pray that this morning, that as we begin a new year, that we will be reminded of what is ahead for us. In a world that we are told is going to be perilous times, and we're seeing the perilous times, the violent times, the uncertainty, the corruption, Lord, the things that are before us that concern us greatly. We wonder about the future for our kids, for our grandkids. But Lord, for us, we know there's a glorious future and that there is not only the blessed hope, but a living hope, as Peter writes in his epistle. I pray that you would touch our hearts this morning. We would be attentive to these things that we're going to read and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We do read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. And in chapter 5, remember that when this letter was originally written, there was no chapter breaks. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day, and we are not of the night nor of darkness. Now, First Thessalonians is part of what is called the early epistles, Galatians, that we're going to continue with next week. We've got two more chapters, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, called the early epistles. Paul's writing this from Corinth on his second missionary journey. He had just established the church at Thessalonica. And as we know that he's writing to this young church, matter of fact, he writes to them about what is called the blessed hope. That's what he calls it, the, the rapture of the church, the blessed hope, as he's writing to Titus in that pastoral epistle. And he is given that blessed hope to them so that they can be comforted. This church, the Christians, were going through persecution. They were going through difficulties. They were very young. And as he writes at the end of chapter 4, comfort one another with these words. Again, as he is writing about that comfort, he did not want them to be ignorant concerning the resurrection. Now, Paul, as he writes to this church, this church in Greece, very close to Mount Olympus, and in the Greek culture, 
in ancient times particularly, they gave no hope for the afterlife. It was, it was very dark, if you would. And what happens when uh, someone died is what the philosophers would say is that there is no hope. Hope is for the living, not for the dead. Many of the Greek uh, tombstones that they had uh, excavated in ancient times had the words on it, no hope. Their thought was they believed that when you died, that you went to a place that was similar to Hades that you read about in Luke chapter 16. And from there, you would cross over rivers, sticks, escorted by someone, and you would end up in a beautiful field or you ended up in tortoise. That was a place of torment. It was very negative, their thoughts of the afterlife. It was fearful. And, and they did not, for the most part, believe in the resurrection. And we see that clearly in the scriptures. You recall on Mars Hill in Athens that Paul spoke to the Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17. And he spoke to them about the resurrection. And it tells us that he was mocked. He would write to the Corinthians, Corinth only about 50 miles south of Athens, very much influenced by the Greek culture. And as he writes that first letter to them, he writes to them about the resurrection. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the longest chapter in that book. And the reason that he's writing to them, because there were some who were preaching that there is no resurrection. Now, keep in mind, as we discussed a few months ago, as we went through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, the resurrection speaks of eternal life, but having a new heavenly body. And as the resurrection is explained to us in the scriptures, we don't fully understand it, but we can grasp that we one day, because Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the very foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He bodily rose from the grave, and because he rose from the grave, then we have the promise that we're going to be resurrected, that our bodies will be raised from the grave as well. And he is the first fruits. Everyone will follow in their own order. But the resurrection is when we get our new heavenly bodies. Now, there's actually everyone who's going to be resurrected. It was Jesus that spoke of two resurrections. Remember that he said in John's gospel that those, uh, as he claims to be the resurrection and the life, that there would be those um, that will hear his voice from the graves. They will be resurrected to those who have done good to resurrection to life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You recall in Daniel chapter 12 that we read that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So Paul here is reading about the resurrection at that time when the trumpet will blow and then we will be meeting the Lord in the air and we will get our new resurrected bodies. Now, I want you to be established in this truth. There are those who will teach a soul sleep and that's a false doctrine that has crept into the church, different circles of Christianity. They say that when you die, your soul sleeps until the rapture of the church. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul, when he's writing about the resurrection, that, that you're going to get that new heavenly body, he tells us to be absent, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you breathe your last and, and you close your eyes, that you immediately, believers, go to be with the Lord. And that is a comfort for you and for me. Those of you who have loved ones, who are believers, that they're with the Lord, but when that trumpet blows at the rapture of the church, 
then we're going to meet the Lord and we will be uniting our bodies, our new heavenly bodies, with our spirit that is with the Lord. So it's a hard concept to understand, but that's what the Bible declares. And as Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, Timothy comes to him when Paul's in Corinth, and he gives a report to, the, to Paul concerning the church because they were going through persecution. They were a young church. They uh, were going through a lot of difficulties. He was concerned for them. So Timothy comes back to give a report. He says they're doing well. They're staying strong in their faith. But apparently they were confused about this whole subject of the resurrection. So Paul here is writing to them because he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. That is a term for those who have died. And Paul tells them in verse 15, let's read it again in 1 Thessalonians 4, that for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Then he explains it in detail in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he writes that you comfort one another with these words. And as you comfort one another, you're comforted by this truth of the blessed hope. You can give that comfort to others as well. The apostle here, inspired by the Spirit of God, is telling us of a wonderful truth that there will be a time, a generation of Christians who are alive and remain, shall be caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo, and it has the meaning of a sudden taking, uh, a sudden snatching to meet him in the air. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers later, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Whenever you read that word mystery in the New Testament, it's not having the meaning of who done it, all right? It is a truth that is being revealed that we can understand. So he says, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. There's going to be uh, a generation of Christians that will be alive. And we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's the speed of light at the last trumpet for the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Now, the early church, I don't think, <clears throat> had terms and jargon like what we use today. We hear all these terms of pre-trib. You know, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, you know, amillennialism, all of this. As you read the New Testament, the early church believed in the imminent return of Christ. So the Christians here, as Paul's writing to them, he writes to them five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. In each of those chapters, he writes about the return of the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For them to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath to come. Listen, when it comes to the blessed hope, when it comes to the rapture of the church, where Jesus comes for his church, I don't want you to be confused or ignorant what the scripture declares. There's two aspects to the return of the Lord. And, and for some of you, this is something that you know, you've read, uh, we've been uh, talked about in our previous studies going through the scriptures. But many don't understand. And just as in his first coming, there were different aspects of Jesus' first coming. His birth that we celebrated last week. We have his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. 
So in the second advent of Jesus, it includes, number one, the rapture of the church, where he comes for his church, where we will meet him in the air. Jesus said in John chapter 14 that I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. Then there's the second coming of Jesus where we're going to come back with him. And the Bible is very, very clear that that will take place uh, at the end of that seven-year period called the tribulation period. It's recorded for us in Revelation chapter 19. And it tells us, that the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he comes back literally, he comes back physically. He'll touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, as the book of Zechariah says, will heave in half. And he comes back, and the armies of heaven are with him. Jude, that little epistle right before the book of Revelation, tells us that he comes with ten thousands of his saints. So we know that the scripture, the timeline is given to us, that that will take place at the end of that seven-year period called the tribulation period. We talked about it in detail in a recent Daniel study. It's called Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week begins the day of the Lord, that term that we just read about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It begins with one that rises up on the scene called the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with Israel for seven years and for a whole week. And we also know that Revelations chapter 6 through 19 gives us details about Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. And it begins with the rider on the white horse in chapter 6 verse 2 who comes conquering unto conquer. And he's going to come on the scene. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be an economic leader. He's going to be a military leader. And he is going to be a religious leader because he is going to declare himself as God to be worshiped as God in the temple of God in the middle of that week. So all those things are taking place in the tribulation period, concluding with Jesus coming back with you and me. So the rapture of the church is he comes for his church. The second coming of Jesus Christ, he comes with his church. And here in chapter 5, let's read it again as we see that in verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, I just gave you that term. It's not a specific day as we define that term, but as we look at it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the uh, writers of the New Testament wrote about it. Jesus spoke about that day, the day of the Lord, but it's a period of time. The tribulation period includes the second coming of Jesus Christ and the millennium reign of Jesus, and that's all part of the day of the Lord. But when it concerns the day of the Lord, that verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, what day? The day of the Lord should overtake you as a thief, because you're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of night nor are of darkness. The scripture is very, very clear to you and to me. As we, on this New Year's Day, meet together, that there is a promise of a blessed hope, the rapture of the church. And don't let anybody tell you that there is no rapture. Sometimes people say, there's no rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it is in the Latin Bible. Because that word harpazo in the Greek, a sudden taking, is the Latin word rapturus, where we get our English word, word rapture, a sudden taking. 
So it is taught very clearly in the scriptures. And the Lord is going to come for us to meet him in the air, comfort one another. You have a blessed hope, Peter writes, that we have a living hope. And sometimes I'll hear someone say, well, we shouldn't be concerned about or looking for the return of the Lord, the rapture of the church. Listen, this is a young church. Paul was with them for a very short time. Acts chapter 17 indicates that Paul may have been there in Thessalonica for a little over three weeks. And he talked to them about the rapture. He talked to them about the day of the Lord, the Antichrist, the falling away. We know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because Paul talks about all these things and says, Don't you remember? Don't you remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. You see, he wrote that second letter to them a year after this first letter because they thought they had missed the rapture. Paul says, no, no, you haven't missed the rapture. The day of Christ or the day of the Lord won't come until Antichrist is revealed and there is a falling away. It's a study for another time that we can look at in detail. But they thought that they were in the day of the Lord. They were troubled. Paul says, no, don't be troubled. Don't be shaken in mind as though the day of Christ or the Lord had come. And they would be shaken because there was a false letter that had Paul's name forged on it. Or there are those who were given false prophecy or by spirit, he says, given that the day of the Lord, they were in it. They were in the tribulation period. And Paul here, as he writes in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, that when that does happen, sudden destruction comes. So you can understand why they were concerned. They shall not escape. And notice, though, something very important. Notice the change of pronouns. When it comes to the rapture, it is we will meet the Lord in the air. When it comes to the day of the Lord, they shall not escape. So he says, I was with you. I talked to you about these things. That, that it hasn't changed. And they will not escape. And the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That is unexpectedly. But you, brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And then in verse 5, we're sons of the light, not of the night, nor of darkness. When Jesus in Luke's narrative would talk about his return, the return of the Son of Man, he would say it'd be like the days of Noah and, and the days of Lot. And we know that in the days of Noah, as he built that ark, he's a preacher of righteousness, and he built that ark, it's believed, for 120 years. He built that ark, and he's preaching righteousness. The people that were there weren't expecting it to rain. It had never rained before because the climate was a lot different. And so as he preached to them, all of a sudden he's put into the ark, the door closes, and then the rain would come. So the judgment would come suddenly, <clears throat> unexpectedly. We know in the days of Lot, as you read the book of Genesis, as Lot was in the city of Sodom, he also sat at the, the gate of Sodom, which was a place of leadership. The New Testament calls Lot righteous Lot. And as the angels came to take Lot and his family out, they didn't believe that judgment was going to come. They didn't believe that, <clears throat> that fire and brimstone was going to come upon them. And when they told their family, they said, no, there's no judgment. I mean, it was economically prosperous, culturally stimulating. They wanted to stay there. They lingered, and the angel said, you need to leave, Lot. You need to get out of here and your family. You need to go because we can't do anything to this city until you're taken out. And I believe that is a picture of you and I who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
that will be taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth, that we will be taken out before God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. He's going to take his bride away. So it's a picture of that as we read, but then judgment would come. It came suddenly. It came unexpectedly, uh, completely. And as we look at this, he says, when they say peace and safety, sudden destructions will come upon them, and they will not escape. So the day of the Lord is a time where God will intervene more dramatically, more directly into the affairs of the whole world than ever before, the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejected world. But Paul would write in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then once again he writes it at the end of that section in verse 11, that you comfort each other, edify one another. That is, that what you are to do is build each other up, encourage each other, just as you are doing. Build each other up. Remind each other that you are children of the light, not of the day. That there is going to be the blessed hope that's going to come. Which leads me to the second point that I want to make about the blessed hope. And that is imminency. It is connected with the rapture. In other words, there are no prophecies. I'm going to say it again. There are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the Lord to come for his church. Now, there are those who will say... And others that are around, they'll, they'll want to argue, and they'll say that while the imminent return of Jesus was not taught in church history until the 1800s or 1880. And that's just not true. If you do your homework, you can see that, first of all, it's all throughout the New Testament. The early church document, the Didache, written in 100, 120 A.D., told the Christians that you be ready, for you do not know the hour that your Lord comes. Early church leaders taught on imminent return. The Epistle of Clemens, written in 96 A.D., wrote on the imminent return. In his second epistle, he did the same thing. The Epistle of Barnabas wrote on the imminent return. He could appear at any time. Latimer in the 1400s preached imminent return. Martin Luther and John Wesley said expect him every hour. John Calvin, the point is the New Testament doctrine is one of imminence believed and taught by the apostles, passed through the ages. And I like what Dr. Mark Hitchcock says. He's an end-time expert, and I got some of his books. Just a really brilliant man in, in the study of scriptures on the return of the Lord. He said that I take imminency so serious that when I go out to eat, I order my dessert before I eat my meal. <laughs> so that's a good perspective to have. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that watch therefore, for you do not know the hour that the Lord is coming. So just dismiss anyone who puts a date on, you know, the rapture of the church or the coming of the Lord. Uh, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus was talking about the tribulation period, he said, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. What things? The things that he had been talking about. That men will become so fearful that they'll faint. 
that the distress of nations, the perplexity that they'll be going through, the signs that we read in the Olivet Discourse, their birth pangs, even as, as Paul here says, the labor pains like the pregnant woman, that they'll become more frequent and, and more intense as we get closer to the return of the Lord. And we're seeing that happen. Look at what has happened in the last 10 years, the last five years. We see it all around us, those signs, the super sign, Israel becoming a nation once again. And he said, watch. He watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. I don't know if you've had this happen. I know a few of you had. I know I have. That we shouldn't be looking for the rapture of the church. You who guys who believe in the rapture of the church, you're just wanting to escape. Well, I'll take it. Okay? I mean, do you want to be here in the tribulation period? Jesus said there is a way of escape. And that is you are a believer. And so what does it mean for all of us as we go through this? And again, you know, there are those who will come along and say in the 1880s, the pre-tribulation rapture didn't happen until Margaret McDonald and John Darby brought this position and they made it popular. Listen, John Darby was talking about God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel years before Margaret McDonald had that vision. And John Nelson Darby was an extremely, extremely intelligent individual. He translated the Bible himself in French and German and English, he translated the New Testament in seven languages. Quite an undertaking. And then people will say, well, the pre-tribulation rapture is not historic church doctrine. And I say, so what? Seriously. Because for many, many years, the history of the church being a mess, that justification by faith was not historic church doctrine for a long time, till the Reformation. I look to see if it's biblical doctrine. And the imminent return of Jesus Christ is very clear, taught by Jesus Paul. And he would tell Titus, Paul would, that we are to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. So what does it mean for us on this first day of 2023 and moving forward? How do we apply this in our lives? The Lord's going to come back, first of all, live soberly, righteously, godly. It's not a time to be messing around with your Christianity. Sometimes I would hear pastors say, you need to get, you know, be a serious Christian. I kind of, what do you, you know, it's time to get serious. It's not a time to be all involved in the world and weighed down Jesus said, don't be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of life. You might be thinking, I I don't go out drinking, partying, cares of life. There are so many distractions out there, so many voices that are out there. And now's the time to really be focused on the Lord and growing in the word of God. Keep coming here, encouraging, serving the Lord. Don't take a back seat. Dad, you take care of your family. You take care of your kids, and you love them, and you love your spouse, and you reach out to others who need to hear the gospel. There are so many people around us that need to hear it. You know, we live in a day, we look around, and one of the things that we're to watch, you know, we see what's going on with our nation, and it concerns us how we're in decline spiritually and morally. 
But the hope of our nation is a spiritual awakening, and the greatest influence to our nation is not a political party. Now, I'm not saying that that's not important. The things that are going on in our leaders, and I pray for godly leaders, I appreciate godly leaders, but the greatest influence to our nation is you. Do you know that? And when you grasp that, that you get to be a light to your community, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family member, that you get to make a difference in their lives. And that's what I pray that this church would be a light that would shine in the darkness, that you would be a light to give to others because there's a whole lot of people that are going through turmoil and difficulties. They're going through confusion. They don't know what you know. The world's going to be the world, all right? The church needs to be the church. So keep your eyes on the Lord. Be used in the days in which we're living in. Live soberly, righteously. Be about the things of the Lord. What manner of men ought we to be, Peter writes, concerning the return of the Lord and living in holy conduct? And if you're living all carnally and being distracted by all the voices of the world, and again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be informed. Of course we want to be informed. But you be one to give words of truth and comfort to others. I was doing a memorial service down in Denver just two days ago on Friday. And just a... You know, to do, we, we do more funerals here than ever before. So many losses. And doing the funeral down there, I didn't know anybody except for the family that was doing it for. There was a service man that, that you know, I'm going to do a service for somebody who served our nation. I love this nation. But I told him that your hope is Jesus and gave him the gospel. A guy comes up to me afterwards and he says you know I said I, I recognize your voice I listened to you on the radio you and Ed Taylor you guys saved my life the Lord saved him I was in a hopeless state and I began to listen to truth and then you know you saved my marriage and, and, and all of this the Lord did the work but we get to be vessels to give truth to others are you giving truth are you loving others and as you pray, Lord, how can I be a vessel to, to reach others in this messed up world? You will be amazed how God's going to use you. In between services, I just got to notice. Somebody in the community, he'll come out. I'm not going to say I can't. That they just went through a tragic loss. And Lord has been given me and Sue opportunity to be able to minister to this family. And they're going to need it. Don't go to sleep. And don't be messing around with your, your walk with the Lord, your Christianity. Because people are hurting. And I pray that this is a place where spiritual revival takes place. And that it's a hospital for those who are lost. So live soberly, righteously. Be looking for the return of the Lord. That is a commandment. That's not a suggestion. Be paying attention to what's going on in the world, Israel. We see that Benjamin Netanyahu, for the sixth time, I've met Benjamin Netanyahu. I met him down at ground zero. 
me and a group of pastors from Calvary Chapel were there after his first, you know, span as being the prime minister of Israel. And we got to talk to him a little bit and standing, looking over the rubble of ground zero. And he's sitting there shaking his head and he said, we warned them. His sixth term sworn in just a few days ago on Thursday, I believe. He's very much into the security of Israel. They asked him, what is the top priority in your, in, in, as now being sworn in as your sixth term? And Israel's politics are a lot different. They're very complicated. But he said, number one, stop Iran. Number two, stop Iran. Number three, stop Iran. So we know that Ezekiel 38 tells us of a confederation of nations that are going to come on a scene, and nations very much play a role in the end-time scenario, that they're going to come against Israel when they are secure. Benjamin Netanyahu is very determined to stop Iran from making nuclear weapons. I was listening to the CIA director in an interview. They asked him about Russia and Ukraine. And, of course, we've heard from Wes Bentley as we are helping them extract Christians out of Afghanistan to go to Europe. And he's been in Ukraine. And, and, um, but Joel Rosenberg, a good source in the Rosenberg report, was reporting this year that the Russian army has taken heavy casualties. And up to 100,000 soldiers have been killed or injured. So is Putin, is he Gog spoken of, of Ezekiel 38? It's too early to tell. He is Gogish. And Magog and his confederation of nations that are going to come and invade Israel, and then God's going to intervene on behalf of Israel. We do know weapons of mass destruction will be used in the battle of, of Ezekiel 38 because it's very clear from Ezekiel 39, the cleanup. The CIA director says we're very concerned because they have weapons in position that they use nuclear weapons. Iran, it is believed some intelligence sources say they have a bomb. They may be even doing some underground testing. And it's going to all come to a head in that invasion of Israel, Ezekiel 38. When is the timing of that? We don't know for sure. It could be the next major war in the Middle East that we see. We see our own nation. Is there going to be a decline in our nation? We need to pray. As I said, the hope of our nation is a spiritual revival. But Europe is going to rise up. The Antichrist is going to be the dominant empire, that fourth beast of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, that revived Roman Empire. What does it mean for Russia and Ukraine? Are they going to expand? Are they going to then turn and go into the Middle East? They already got troops there in Israel. The CIA director, they asked them, well, what about that? I'm concerned. What about Iran? I'm concerned about that. What about China? As we get further through the decade that the threat of invasion of Taiwan increases, he says, we're concerned about that. North Korea, we're concerned about that. Those in the upper levels of intelligence, they don't sleep very well. They will say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. There's a lot of things to be watching, praying for our nation, because I believe God wants to save our nation. And he wants to save those that are linked to you in your life. And you have opportunity to speak the gospel, the good news to them. 
to be looking for the return of the Lord. We'll keep updating you on things that are taking place that are of significance. But as you go through the year, listen, as you go through the year and you see the mess that's all around us and you go through the challenges yourself and the heartaches and the difficulties, will you know that there's a blessed hope and the Lord sees you and he wants to give you the strength and he wants to give you the courage and he wants to give you his grace so you can get through day by day and you keep looking for the blessed hope, the return of the Lord. He who has this hope purifies himself, John said. That you're not going to be out all involved in the world if you really believe that perhaps today, we don't know the day or the hour, could it be today that the Lord, the one who died for me, can come for me? Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. That has been so illustrated. And what I have gone through in ministering to families so clearly in the last couple years. You be a light. Be living for the Lord. Take care of your family, guys. You bring them here. You keep coming. And you keep in the word of God. And keep looking to him. The one who's the author of life. The, the author of eternal life. Finisher of our faith. Who died for you who's coming for you, for all of us. So, Father, we thank you. There's a million other things we could talk about, Lord, and we will as the year goes on, but we have a blessed hope, the return of the Lord that is promised to us. So I pray that we would keep eternity a perspective in our lives. And, Lord, as we conclude here, as we're going to be moving into this new year, you're speaking words to us to live soberly and righteously and godly. So I want to pray while our eyes are closed and we're praying, being respectful of others, that if you're here and you're saying, Lord, you're speaking to me, I've been weighed down with so many other things. I've been distracted by so many other voices. I haven't redeemed the time. I prioritize other things over you, not trusting you in these areas. I'm not taking care of my family like I should. I'm not loving my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm being carnal. My language has been terrible. I'm not being what I could be and should be. And all of us, we know that we fall short, Lord. But if the Lord's speaking to you, you know what I mean on this area that you redeem the time, you turn to him right now and you say, Lord, day by day, I want to walk with you in this new year and trust you and be the man, the woman of God that you've called me to be. Listen, if the Lord is speaking to you again while we're being respectful and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that's you, just put your hand up and put it back down. God bless you. Anybody? God bless you. Blessings. So many hands. God bless you. God bless you. I see you. Father, for those who are raising their hands, for all of us, that we would live soberly and righteously in this world, to live for you, not for ourselves, and not for the world, because this world's come to a disaster. And I pray you fill them with your spirit.
Fill them with your love. And I also want to pray for anyone, whether you're listening online or in this place this morning, that you've never made a commitment to Christ. Listen, get right with God, because tomorrow is a promise to you. And Jesus is your salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He's not a way. He is the way. He went to a cross and He died for your sins because we've all sinned. And He rose again. He cried out from the cross, It is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. And the invitation is for you to come and to surrender to Him, to admit that you are a sinner, to repent. Quit going the direction you're going. And turn to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of sin and being brought into the family of God because he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He proved he's the Son of God by rising from the grave and he loves you so much. Will you come to him right now? Don't leave this place if you're not right, if you're not sure. And you sincerely, you can pray that Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me on Calvary's cross. And I ask that you be my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for forgiving me. And I thank you for this new beginning that I have in you and bringing me into the family of God. That in this new year, all things become new now. In Jesus' name. And if you are listening online or on the radio later, contact us if you made a decision for Christ. But for us today, again, if that's you, I want you to put your hand up and put it back down. I want to be more deliberate. God bless you. Anybody else making a decision for Christ? God bless you. God bless you. I see. And anybody else, Lord, that I don't see, you see. You know their hearts. And I pray that you would just fill them with your love and spirit, they would have certainty that they belong to you, a son, a daughter of the living God. Lord, guide us and direct us in this year. May there be revival in our hearts and with our families. We pray for our nation that desperately needs you, our community. And Lord, may we give the good news be light to others. Keep us strong, Lord. Give us wisdom. For those who need provision, provide for them. Wisdom, strength, you're everything we need. Going forth in this year, may you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. In Jesus' name.